1: I'm Adam Coleman, and welcome back into the Cosmic Library, the show about struggling forever. In the Hebrew Bible's book of Genesis, a line of descent from Adam, the first person, brings us to the character Noah, who builds an ark and preserves life during a flood that otherwise wipes out life on earth. From Noah, Genealogy leads us to Abraham, chosen by God to initiate a tradition bound to God. This might seem like a clear, straightforward sort of covenant, but Abraham's grandson Jacob's crucial encounter with the divine is emphatically a struggle, a kind of wrestling match. The poet and translator Peter Cole says,
2: Jacob's wrestling with the angel in Genesis 32 is a kind of primal scene of the struggle. He's holding his own, Jacob is holding his own in that struggle until the man knocks his hip out of its socket. And then the adversary asks to be released and Jacob demands that he bless him first. And the man asks Jacob his name, apparently as a condition for the blessing.
1: Names and the search for names or for language
2: are part of this basic struggle. And he can only be blessed in that struggle And because of that struggle, then God changes his name to Israel, which means he struggles with God. That struggle with God is also very much encoded into the fundamental naming of the entire people, Israel, people of Israel. So that, again, struggle becomes contention becomes a a central contention and and an open-endedness, right? Because a struggle is something that's open-ended by definition, that kind of struggle with an ultimate value like God.
1: The kind of wrestling in the Bible means also facing, reflecting on, dealing with something that might be disastrous, especially in language. We're going to talk about non-biblical examples of that kind of literary existential wrestling match in this episode. In the 20th century and with attention to other disasters. Anyway, the Bible makes a connection between language and struggle with mysteries. There's a poetic play with language that comes with this struggle. Here's
2: Peter Cole again. The release from at least that one struggle only and the, the blessing only comes with a, a knowledge of names or an encounter with one's desire to know the names. In translating that to a kind of poetic plane. I was just teaching this recently. I was teaching Gertrude Stein as a Jewish poet, something most people don't, don't do or approve of, but she has a passage in poetry and grammar, a lecture she gave when part of her lecture tour in America, and she says, poetry is doing nothing but using, losing, refusing, and pleasing, and betraying and caressing nouns, really loving the name of anything. And there is that dimension of the lists of names in the Bible, the genealogies, all the important characters, or many of them, have changes of names that are that are critical. So th- that naming is pretty much um, everywhere. And there's also a sense that language. Well, there's a classic in the King James, the preface of the King James Bible, the translators' preface. They're sort of trying to figure out English is such is such a bigger vocabulary than Hebrew, biblical Hebrew especially. And they said, why should we use one theory of biblical translation at the time would be that you pick a word that goes in English that goes with the Hebrew word and you don't vary it even though English has a lot of options every time that word shows up in Hebrew even though in Hebrew it may be pointing to different things you use the same English word to keep that one to one relationship and they say is the kingdom of god become words and syllables and the jewish answer for that is absolutely it's all the spirit is entirely in the kind of flesh of the of the language.
1: Joshua Cohen spoke with me about the Hebrew Bible's status in a tradition of living and thinking through language.
3: In in my mind, then, it was never about the Bible per se. It was you know the Bible was the text that one had to take for granted. It was the pretext very much so that was necessary for this heuristic for this process of pardes, or later this idea of Talmudic pillpool, which is a process of interpretation that in a way inculcates a way to think. And it teaches one how to read, and it teaches one how to think, and it teaches one how to function among disparate texts and find commonalities, um, and also to find contradictions. And so in a way, no, no rabbi that I you know, grew up around was ever going to tell me that the text was meaningless, of course, like the text is holy. It was, it was given to Moses on Sinai. But yet there was such a stress on the interpretive apparatus that in a way the text itself disappears.
1: I talked to poet and critic Elisa Gabbert about the nature of another kind of ongoing literary study, the poetic analysis of and struggle with disasters. It might help to think of literature itself as struggle, even on the basic question of what poetry is, you'll find nothing but struggle.
4: Somebody will, you know, screamingly disagree with you, <laughs> no matter what you say. I, I was always of the opinion that, oh, the simplest definition of poetry that nobody can de- deny is that it's just not prose. You know, if, if you break the line before you get to the margin, it's a poem. But then the people who are like, well, what about prose poetry will bust your door down.
1: When I spoke with Gabbard, a piece she'd written on the 20th century English poet W.H. Auden's Musée de Beaux-Arts was about to be published in the New York Times.
4: This poem is not like Rilke to me. It's not comforting at all. What I like about it is that it's a non-comforting moral engagement. And I think that's also why he liked it.
1: I wanted to know how that poem of mid 20th century disaster related to the broader question of literary struggle with painful mysteries
4: a famous ekphrastic poem it's based on a painting it's a short poem but it's about disaster and not really a specific disaster at least not explicitly but just sort of the idea of disaster and what do we call disaster what do we recognize as disaster is it really only what we're paying attention to and what are we missing by focusing on some disasters and not others or by focusing on our own little banalities (laughs) of the day-to-day.
1: Notice all the questions, or the way questions prompt more questions. Notice the emphasis on what do we call disaster. This is a struggle through language that we're circling around in this episode. Here's Elisa Gabbert's reading of the poem in question.
4: Here it is. Okay, he's de Beaux-Arts. About suffering they were never wrong, the old masters, how well they understood its human position. How it takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. How, when the aged are reverently, passionately waiting for the miraculous birth, there always must be children who did not specially want it to happen, skating on a pond at the edge of the wood. They never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course. Anyhow, in a corner, some untidy spot where the dogs go on with their doggy life and the torturer's horse scratches its innocent behind on a tree. In Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. The plowman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had to on the white legs disappearing into the green water. And the expensive, delicate ship that must have seen something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky, had somewhere to get to and sailed calmly on. It's one of those sort of, I think, deceptively open ended poems where you can read it differently um, on you know on a given day, or I think the way I've read it has changed as I've gotten older. So I first encountered this home when I was in grad school. So I was in my early 20s. And I really kind of focused on, you know, the wryness and the humor of it. I love that part about the dogs going on with their doggy life. And, you know, it's, it seemed to me to just sort of be about perspective in this, this rye wise sense of like, disasters pass. And if they're not happening to you, they're, they're really not that big of a deal. And, and you know, the grand scheme of things from a distance, once they're in history, uh, who cares? I think that read is totally valid, but I it's it's opened up to me more the more that I've read it, and I I think there's more irony in it than that. There's more judgment in it than that. I mean, Autumn was very religious; he was very much like a golden rule kind of guy. <laughs> I think there's bitterness in the poem that I didn't use to hear. I think there's also self judgment. You know, he's. He, w- he actually went to this museum and saw all these Bruegels in Brussels. And it's a comment on his own privilege and comfort to some extent, you know, being able to wander around the museum. And he wrote this in 1938. So, you know, Europe was on the brink of war. And that must have been on his mind. And he was about to move to the U.S. and escape it. There's all those undercurrents of outward facing bitterness, but also maybe guilt.
1: When I listen to it now, I have not read it. As many times as you have, but my experience of it sounds like it's maybe closer to your earlier experience of it i I notice this kind of first order irony, yeah, the irony of doggy life going on you know while somebody is suffering. I get it that's sort of the literal irony immediately in front of you, but you're saying like you're saying multiple ironies open up from there, a kind of self reflexive irony, the irony of the speaker's role in the world,
4: yeah. Yeah, exactly. The irony over the irony. <laughs> the painting that it's based on, which uh, I love this painting. It's great. The sort of viewpoint of the painting is very much like the viewpoint of the poem. It's about the, you know, quote unquote, about the fall of Icarus. But Icarus is this tiny little figure with his like sticking out of the water, <laughs> like off on the side of the painting. You wouldn't even notice at first because... In the forefront of the painting is this plowman with this bright red shirt and he's very salient. There's this like, you know, beautiful blue sky and you see all these other little figures, a little farmer and a little fisherman. And Icarus is like not the point of the painting, you know? So there's that same humor in the painting that's in the poem. And the, and the, the painting is even further removed from us, right? Like, so this the poem's almost not quite, <laughs> it's 80 years old-ish and the painting is from the 1500s, I think. So we don't know know exactly what Roykel was like, but I see multiple levels of irony in his work too. Your
0: brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
1: If you keep reading the poem over the decades to come and through more disasters and through a future that seems pretty grim, the ironies will continue to proliferate. Where does that ultimately leave us? Just in the kind of fog of infinity or where, where do these ironies on top of ironies tend toward
4: i've understood the poem more deeply or maybe you want to say broadly i just have more ways of understanding it now that i know more about Auden and the context i mean when i when i first read it i just read it as being about this painting <laughs> you know that's, that's like one simple level of meaning but you know, then you learn more about it and you you know find out he was doing a little traveling right before he left Europe to move to the US. You learn about other poems that he was writing at the time and so much more comes into light. And so in this piece that I wrote, I contrast it against another very well-known poem of his, September 1st, 1939, which he wrote on that day, the day that Nazi Germany invaded Poland They were both published in 1939, but they're very different poems. Formally, September 1st is much more regular and metrical, and it has a much more obvious rhyme scheme. I don't know if you could hear it when I read Musée, but it actually has a rhyme scheme too. It's just very irregular and strange because the line lengths are very like sort of jagged and it doesn't fall into a a clear metrical rhythm. So they're kind of hard to hear at first, and most of An's poems are very metrical. But also, September 1st is much more browbeating and <laughs> its political message. It's very clearly about war, whereas Musée, you have to make it be about war by knowing that he wrote it with World War II in sight. But he doesn't mention the word war. He doesn't talk about war at all. September 1st is like very clearly about war and it has much more of kind of like a rallying cry sort of message. It was really popular. It went viral in its day, like insofar as that was a thing, you know, (laughs) like it was just shared really widely and read on the radio and um, published in a lot of different newspapers and things like that.
1: Is this a poem that uniquely directs you toward context and directs you toward that research project, like um, reading adventure beyond the poem?
4: I don't think so, except, you know... If you wanted to see the painting, like if you read the poem and were curious what the painting looked like, and then you might dig further and find out, oh, there's actually other girls that he doesn't mention by name that he's referring to. And you can go down a rabbit hole. And, and I did. This is just something I chose to do. <laughs> I mean, I, I read this for years and always enjoyed it for what it was and like didn't really dig that much deeper but it was an extremely instructive exercise because, I mean, I think of myself as a really good close reader, but this is sort of another level of close read. (laughs) It reminds you how much text there is in a poem. It's wild. Like, this is like a 15 or 16 line poem. Poems are so short and so quick to read, but they can take a very long time to sort of fully understand. And I don't want to say that means that you can't have a brief encounter with a poem and have that be enough. It can be enough. But good poems keep yielding more information, (laughs) the more time you spend with them. And that's fascinating. Like I'm sure there's still I'm sure so much that I don't know or understand about this poem, even though I've been reading it over and over again for the past several months.
1: It never really stops amazing me how repeated readings of Auden of ancient literature, almost consistently bring out something new. This has to be part of the language struggle, and maybe one of the most magnificent parts of that struggle, that dynamic of novelty that comes from, and maybe sometimes returns to, sameness. I asked the neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett about the reward of first artistic experience of something, before repetition. But it turns out, most experience of art, poetry, music, repeats something, is a matter of revisiting something. Here's what I asked is the first time i listen to jailhouse rock something like a psychedelic experience you know like be, before it's become routine before it's become cliche is it expanding neural activity in ways that it doesn't the third or fourth time i hear it
0: absolutely um but i would also say that you know our brains have this really amazing capacity to kind of mix and match the features of experience so scientists call this conceptual combination. And what that means is, maybe you'd never heard Jailhouse Rock, but you might have heard songs that had similar chord arrangements, or, you know, Western music, and rock and roll of that of that era has certain regularities to it that say rock and roll doesn't have necessarily now, or that maybe, you know, funk or rap doesn't really ha- use. You can... Use bits and pieces from past experience to try to predict. Every experience we have, every action we take is always a combination of what we know and potentially what there is available to learn. And usually it's, you know, some combination of the two, maybe a little heavier on the prediction. But sometimes, you know, when you're in school or when you travel to a new country or when you're foraging for novelty there might be a little more prediction error and a little more opportunity to expand your knowledge.
1: Certainty and error, familiarity and unfamiliarity merge in music, in art, in poetry, where you have a tranquil place for struggling with these contraries. But not all struggle can be good struggle, I think. I asked Peter Cole, what constitutes good struggle and bad in the Tanaka? Like when is it actually oh, you're on, you're on the bad side. You're not, you're not just struggling
2: in a way that's, that's worthy. So morally, of course it matters if you're on the bad side, you're on the good side. But as a mythic collection, I wanna, I wanna see all the options. One has to enter into the situation of whatever prophetic book it is, whatever story, whether it's a narrative story earlier on or in the prophetic books, a um, cultural moral dimension or challenge and often yes often you're on the bad side you are you either identify with the bad side or you identify yourself as being on the bad side that doesn't matter the point the point is to be engaged in the situation that the book is or that the passages are are laying out and to be engaged by the the power of the rhetoric of the text it's not it's not so much a question of deciding which is bad and which is good they're all good in that mythic sense because they're all valuable in re-enmeshing re-involving re-engaging you making it new for you
1: thank you for listening to mosaic mosaic the third season of the cosmic library Our guests this season include Peter Cole, the poet whose new book, Draw Me After, will be out this fall. Elisa Gabbert, poet and poetry columnist with the New York Times. Her latest book is Normal Distance. Lisa Feldman Barrett, psychologist, neuroscientist, and author of books including How Emotions Are Made. Tom DeRose, curator at the Freud Museum in London, and Joshua Cohen, the novelist whose books include Book of Numbers. Next up is this season's concluding episode on just what you a solitary reader might make of all this.